We're in Genesis chapter 1 again. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're doing a a small series looking at the first three chapters of Genesis uh, to help us sort of understand um, what's wrong with the world right now. And um, the answer really is because the world has forgotten what is taught in Genesis 1 through 3. And in looking at these chapters, we want to be equipped so that we can um, perhaps uh, better respond to some of the uh, issues that we're facing in culture and society. So we're returning to the, the very beginning. It's a good place to start, as, as we've said. And uh, here we're finding a solid foundation for the crumbling culture in which we live. Uh, this evening, what it means to be made in God's image. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word to us. In the 1970s, there was a Harvard scientist named Ellen Langer, and she studied two groups of uh, 91 nursing home residents, uh, controlling for numerous risk factors, as one does, I'm sure, if you know how to run experiments. But the experiment was simple. 91 residents, they all got a plant. They all got a plant. The first group was told, though, that the staff of the nursing uh, facility would care for the plant. It was for them to enjoy, to look at, you know, on the bedside table, but they didn't need to worry about making sure it got enough sunlight or watering it. The staff would take care of it. The second group of 91, given this plant and said, it is your responsibility uh, to keep this plant alive, to water it, and to make sure that it has what it needs to thrive. After 18 months in this experiment, twice as many patients in the second group the group that had to keep the plants alive, twice as many of the patients in that group were alive themselves as the patients in the first group. So what was the conclusion? Well, the conclusion was this. Having a purpose, feeling like you mattered, having a sense of significance, gave these elderly nursing home residents literally something to live for. We all want to be significant. We all want to have a purpose. We all want to matter. And that's why, you know, so many people, uh, when they're younger, perhaps they head out to L.A. or New York City. They try to make it big. It's the same reason why everybody and their mother attempts to uh, start a blog or an Instagram feed in the hopes of becoming an influencer. But as Ellen Longer and her nursing home residents prove, Even far from the allure of fame or notoriety, people still want to matter. Just give them a plant so they can prove it. Well, could it be that the desire to matter, that desire to be significant, 
isn't necessarily self-centered, but actually a completely natural impulse for us to have because, here it is, we do matter. We are significant. I think that's the case. I think the problem isn't that people want to be significant. That's not the problem. It's that we have, by and large, forgotten what makes us significant in the first place. The reason that we have such an angry society today, uh, where people are always trying to yell louder than the last guy, or the reason we have such cutthroat business world, or the reason people are often so anxious and and fearful or afraid or, or depressed, the reason we have so many identity issues, the reason there's so many tribes in our society and you need to belong to a certain one and assert your um, autonomy over other people, the reason we have all these problems is we, because we have forgotten these words. So God created man in his image. We want to tonight recapture the significance of those words and in doing that I think you'll learn that yes, indeed, you are significant. There will be, uh, these will be important truths for you to learn or to be reminded of. I, I do know that, but I also want you to know that you are being equipped tonight for how uh, you might speak with a, a questioning friend, an unbelieving neighbor, because everything that we're going to say tonight, we're going to learn tonight about what it means to be made in God's image is true for your unbelieving friend or your unbelieving neighbor, because we are all made in God's image. And therefore, we all matter. We all have value. We all have significance. That's what we want to discuss tonight. First, though, what is the image of God? That's the first thing. The image of God is what? So there are semester-long courses one could take at seminary that kind of try to unpack that question, the meaning of the phrase image of God. Similarly, the word likeness, which is added to sort of fill out the meaning Um, We're giving a brief definition tonight at the start here. Uh, The term likeness underscores similarity, but not identical reproduction. To be made in God's image, at the very least, though, means that there is a reflection, if I could use that word, of a reflection of God in humanity. There is something from God in us that can answer back to God. Uh, Craig Troxell. Uh, who is Cliff's preaching professor right now in seminary. Uh, Craig Troxell says that in this, uh, we find the uniqueness and the superiority of humanity as compared to the rest of creation. This is what he writes, quote, Man finds his ultimate place in his relationship to God. He is the only one in all of creation who touches both earth and heaven. His very essence is that he is, in fact, made in the likeness of the God of heaven, We are made to commune with God. There's something from God in us that is able to answer back to God. Similarly, James Boyce says that it's on the level of the spirit that we are aware of God and can commune with God. And since we can commune with God, that also makes us, unlike any other created thing, responsible to God. It's very interesting, looking back at our text in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, right after God declares that he makes man in his image... What does he do? He talks to man. God said to them. So Kent Hughes points this out. Immediately after God had created man and woman, he spoke to them. This means that as image bearers, we can hear 
and receive God's word. No other creature can do that. And that means that we're responsible, that we are moral, and we are spiritual beings. We interact with God. We communicate with God, but that makes us responsible for God. And that... Uh, before God. And that makes sense of some other passages in the Bible that speak of the image of God. Um, two in particular, Ephesians 4, verse 24, Paul says that we are made in true righteousness and holiness. Those are the two words he used, the two virtues, righteousness and holiness. And then in Colossians 3.10, added to righteousness and holiness is knowledge. So you have these three. What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, according to Paul, it means to be made with righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. These are moral attributes to be made after God's likeness means to be endowed with a moral capacity to discern between right and wrong, to obey God accordingly, finding our ultimate fulfillment, not in this world, but in the things that are above, because we belong to that world. We are made in the image of the God of heaven. We don't belong here. Our trajectory is set on that realm where God exists. So that is a very, very brief overview, is what the image of God is. The image of God is the fact that we reflect God through our, through our spirit, being spiritual creatures. We can commune with God because we're made in his image, and we're responsible to God because we're made in his image. Spiritual, moral, responsible Creatures that can commune with God and must commune with God. That, I should underscore that. It's not just that we can commune with God. It's that we have to commune with God. Right? Plants were made to need the sun. Souls were made to need their maker, their creator. We need this communion. So then what does that mean for us? How does an understanding of the Imago Dei, as it's called, the image of God, how does that help us today? How does that help us in the madness of our times? How can it bring sanity and, and significance to humanity once again? And the answer is because of what the image of God gives. So we've seen what the image of God is, but then we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight considering what the image of God gives, what it gives to us. Um, and again, this is what it gives to every single person out there. Um, this is not just a holy huddle tonight. Oh, isn't this great? As Christians, this is stuff that's for us. This is true of the human race. Um, we appreciate it in a different way, and as we'll find out at the very end, it will mean something different for those who embrace this truth through faith in Christ. Uh, but this is, this is what it means to be human. This is what it could mean for you to live your best life now, if you would uh, understand what it means to be made in the image of God. What does it give us? Well, let me share three things. The image of God gives, first, equal significance. Equal significance. Not just significance, equal significance. A robust doctrine of the image of God establishes a value to all of humanity in equal measure. And so if we read these words, let us make man in our image, and if we take them to heart, what dignity, what value is instilled in us. We are meaningful, not because we belong to a particular group, not because of our skin color, not because of our gender, not because of who we voted for, but because we are God's, because we belong to him. We're his possession. We are meaningful because of the maker. And so that's true no matter the gender, right? Male and female, he created them. We'll talk about that next week in more detail. 
It's true not just of gender, it's true of the entire human race, which has been created equally by God. Paul preaches that in Acts 17 at Mars Hill, verse 26, says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. From one man. That's why um, we, we, we want to affirm we don't believe in multiple races. There's one race, the human race. Not a white race, not a black race. The human race. We are all part of one big human family. Since we descend, all of us, from Adam, we all share in that image of God with him. Martin Luther King Jr., back in a sermon in um, 1965, he says, There are no gradations in the image of God. No gradations. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. Martin Luther King Jr. says, One day we will know that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and the worth of every man. One day, he says, but of course, uh, we're clearly not there yet. That won't be until the great day, until consummation, when sin is eradicated. We are not marching, I don't know if you haven't realized this, we're not marching towards a better humanity. This is not a, um, you know, hands across America, we are the world moment. I mean, that's, that's not happening, right? Uh, we are more divided than ever over issues like race. Um, in the decades since King preached this, there are many people fighting for uh, the dignity of, of black people in particular that think the only way to do that is actually to devalue the dignity of white people, non-black people. Uh, That's the ideology coming from organizations like Black Lives Matter, which I would hope we would all affirm that as a slogan, that is true. Black Lives Matter, amen. Of course they do, because they're made in the image of God. But that organization and their ideology is not rooted in the Imago Dei, but instead identity politics. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, identity politics. That is the manifestation of Humans in desperate search of value, in desperate search of meaning, in desperate search of importance. Um, And what happens in identity politics, tragically, is that the only way we seem to know how to establish our own value, our own worth, is by um, establishing the lack of somebody else's value and somebody else's worth. But only the truth of an equally, equal value to all humanity, established by a biblical word, worldview, can lead to the true unity of the human race. Jonathan Lehman, he's a, a pastor, Baptist minister out in Virginia, says this, that separatism is endemic to identity politics. It is the worldview of protest. And by the way, identity politics isn't just something like that's out there, those you know people on that side of the political spectrum. This is something that... Everybody is susceptible. It's this idea when you get into your own echo chambers on, on your Facebook groups and you're just bashing the other side and you never hear, hear them out and you're only proposing your views and your values. That's identity politics. We're right. They're wrong. It's us versus them. That's the idea here. And Lehman says separatism is endemic to identity politics. It's a worldview of protest. And while there's a place for protest, it offers nothing more than protest. That's all you can do. Why? Here's what he says. Remove God and his image in us, and then what is left to sustain the dignity 
that we all should have. Nothing, nothing is left except desire. Yet what happens when my desires contradict your desires? When we go to battle, we go to court, we fight elections and Supreme Court nominations with a religious fervor. We conduct social media witch hunts against those who have broken our rules. Why? Because I believe your desires and your convictions dehumanize me. Therefore, I will dehumanize you. So there's that us versus them mentality. But the biblical teaching unites us. Even apart from Christ, there's still a commonality that we all share in the image of God. Another theologian, Owen Strain, writes that that the wokeness of our day tweaks the doctrine of humanity, making us lose sight of the image of God as our constituent identity. This is what constitutes us as being one. He writes, every person is fully human, Per the image. That should be our starting point for understanding every single human person. I forget what author it was, but I was reading this week. They said, look into the eyes of your neighbor. He said, even look to the eyes of your uh, your enemy. And you're seeing a reflection of God. Right? This is the starting point for understanding every human person. We don't begin with how unlike we are. Unlike we are. Rather, we begin with anthropological unity. How alike we are. We are not fundamentally disunited, but we are united. How could we come to that conclusion? Genesis 1 has to be the place. If you recognize what the image of God is teaching, you recognize it gives equal value to all people. It gives a second thing. It gives a second thing, and that is it gives uh, not just equal significance, but it gives real satisfaction. Real satisfaction. A right doctrine of the image of God not only establishes that equal value to all humanity, but it promises, we could call it a fulfilled purpose in life. As we seek meaning and purpose in our lives, we'll never find it apart from that starting place that we are all made in God's image. You remember Augustine's famous line, if you've been here community for some time and you have our old mugs, before we got the maroon 2.0 mugs, we had Augustine's line there, our hearts are restless until we find until they find their rest in you right that's that's the idea why because we're made for god we're made for him our heart will be on the hunt for meaning until it looks to the maker god made us for him he he made us to glorify him he made us to enjoy him and anytime we pursue satisfaction in life apart from the great goal of redounding praise back to our maker back to the one who in whose image we are made, we're going to be empty. We're going to be lost. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to be restless. We're going to be angry. When we don't see that our purpose in life was to obey God, even as God gave Adam and Eve right from the beginning, God blessed them. God said to them, I'm reading verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing. Right? There's a command right away. This is what will make you Fulfilled. This is what will give you uh, uh, fulfillment because this is your purpose in life. When you do this, you will feel fulfilled. When we don't see that our purpose in life is to obey God, and we're not doing what he tells us, then we are filled with all sorts of anxiety. We find our purpose in life when we position ourselves as bowing before our maker. That's the best place for us to be. It was Matthew Henry who said, let him rule man who said, let us make man. 
Let him rule man who said, let us make man. You will not find fulfillment or satisfaction or peace, we could put it that way, in life. If you keep running away from the God who made you in his image. Did you know Jesus actually teaches this? Let's, let's explore that together. It's in Luke chapter 20. Turn there with me. In Luke chapter 20, this is one of the three places this shows up in the Gospels. Um, a, a passage that we read, we probably don't often think of Genesis 1 when we're reading it. We think about um, April 15th. Let's begin in verse 20 of chapter, no, verse 22 of chapter 20. Chief priests and the scribes have sent spies to catch Jesus Here's what they ask. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Right? Pay taxes to Caesar. He perceived their craftiness. He said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' point is quite profound there. Whose likeness is engraved on this coin? Right? Whose profile is on this, is on this denarius? They'll say it's Caesar. And he says since the, the image of Caesar is stamped on this coin, it belongs to Caesar. It's his. So, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he doesn't end there. He adds another clause. And render to God the things that are God's. Did you get the point? Whose image is stamped on this coin? Whose image is stamped on your soul? Whose likeness is engraved on your soul? Oh, we bellyache over who we have to give our hard-earned money to. You know, we argue that it's rightfully ours, and yet we don't even consider the fact that we hold back from God that which is rightfully his, our own selves. We need to do what we were made to do. This is real satisfaction, real fulfillment, doing what we were made to do. We must worship and serve the creator. And that is joy and happiness and fulfillment for all people. And, you know, without uh, sounding irreverent, I think I can use, use our dog as an illustration to, to bring this to life. I know we're talking about the image of God, but let me just bring Obi into this. Many of you know our highly energetic um, Australian shepherd, Obadiah, and many of you love him more than I do. Um, but... He is, he's a highly energetic dog. He's a good dog. He's just got a lot of energy. But unfortunately, he spends most of his time sleeping on the couch. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, before we had kids, we belonged to a, uh, the dog park on KL. I forget what it's called now, Riverview or something like that, uh, River Run. But um, we used to go, Carrie Ann and I would take the dog before we had kids four or five times a week. Uh, 26 acres of lush rolling meadows and it had a pond with a diving dock and we'd get to the door and, uh, and open up the door and let him off the leash and he'd just go. And he loved it. And we'd be there for two hours and he's just running and running and he, and he would dive off the dock um, time and time again fetching the, you know, the, the toys that we throw into the water. And, and you could see it there in, in his eyes and in the tongue hanging out and the slobber all over his face. This is what he's meant to do. He's running free, and he's happy. Why? Because he was made to do this. He was made to do it. 
Well, we were made to worship God. We were made to serve God, not ourselves. Our lives are actually lifeless when we supplant God's glory uh, for another. We, we are not fulfilled. We have no purpose if we try to find it apart from God. Instead, we feel small. We feel fleeting. We're all kind of anxious and, and, and on edge because we know we don't actually have much meaning at all when we don't have our maker. Professor Richard Lintz writes with such clarity on this point. He's an Old Testament professor, and he's writing about the Ten Commandments. And he said the whole reason God gave that second commandment, not to make carved images, uh, was intended to protect Israel's identity as belonging to God. Uh, there, this way he says, it was intended to protect Israel's identity, quote, as image bearers of the divine creator who could be secure in his love for them and his promise to be with them always. But Israel, like the rest of us, were tempted to define the meaning of life as internal to their own desires and their own perceptions. And inevitably, this led to a what he calls a thinning of self-identity, wherein they became less than themselves. They became minimal selves. They were contingent on the gods that they had made for security. And this is the problem we see playing out in the world around us, this desire to be fulfilled. Uh, Those who worship at the altar of the woke agenda or identity politics or secular creeds or entertainment or you fill in the blank, they feel actually not fulfilled. They feel desperately fragile or what Richard Lintz would say, thin. They have minimal selves. Like a caged or frightened animal, they lash out at those who, who threaten them. But when we worship the one true and living God, that brings life with all of its purpose, all its dignity, all of its security as a consequence. To do what we're made to do brings fulfillment. And I hope you're seeing tonight, friends, there's a powerful apologetic opportunity here. Because we know uh, what people are after when they buy into the secular system, right? They want value, they want significance, they want meaning. And if we try to challenge their immoral pursuits, you know, maybe they're trying to find that meaning by, by divorce or by uh, perhaps something uh, slightly more uh, dramatic, like um, um, transitioning from one gender to the next, whatever it might be. Uh, rather than approaching them and saying, well, this is immoral, the Bible says this is wrong, that's not going to get you a lot of headway. They probably will say, well, you don't love me, and I don't want to hear from you anymore. The truth claim isn't going to be the best starting place um, right now, I don't think. Um, Because, as Lynn says, the issue isn't whether the story matches up with reality, but rather, is the story enjoyable? So that's, That's what they want. They don't care if it's logical. They care that it's enjoyable. But here's where we have this apologetic power, I think. We should take this to heart, and I think we should ask our wayward friends, is this actually enjoyable, this life that you're living, running away from God, uh, trying to find pleasure in, in popularity, in, in your, your health, um, in, in your uh, fitness, in, in, in your, um, your social media presence, in your sexuality? Is, this, is it actually enjoyable? Because you seem scared. You seem uh, so fragile that if we talk about it, you, 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 you lash out. You seem insecure. I think if we lean into what it means to be made in God's image, to worship him, to commune with him, to serve and obey him, well, I think then we can say, I found something that I'm not insecure of at all. And I want you to share in that. I found something where I feel very stable and safe. Uh, It's only in doing what we were made to do that we can be truly and eternally happy. And it will not happen. It can happen by by buying into the materialistic, consumeristic, humanist religion of our postmodern world. 
So what does the image of God gives us? It, it, it gives us equal significance. It gives us real satisfaction. We want others to have that too. And I also want to end tonight by saying one final thing, and that is it gives us a hopeful solution. The image of God gives us a hopeful solution. And I want to put a fine point on how exactly embracing the image of God is giving us an answer for all of the confusion, the distress, the division, the sin that we find in our own hearts and, of course, in society. Even though the world is so messed up, and even though we are so messed up, here's the hope. Here's the solution. Here's the answer. God takes such ownership over that which he has made that he is not content to let it go to ruin. The biblical story is that of God the maker stepping into what he has made. God the creator stepping into his creation to redeem, to restore the image that we had marred, the image that we had ruined. He put his copyright on us. He owns us. He's not going to let that go to the dust. The image of God finds its fullest, fullest significance, fullest expression in Jesus, who is the reversal of, of the fall. We see everything, every way in which the, the image of God was marred and, and was ruined is restored in Jesus Christ. Here's what one theologian says. God the Father has given us in Jesus Christ a vis- visual example of what the image of God is. There is no better way of seeing the image of God than to look to Jesus. What's the image of God? Look to Christ. We talked about that this morning even. What we see and hear in Christ is what God intended for man. And that's why the New Testament writers use that language in describing him. Hebrews 1 from this morning. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. But then we ask this question. If my real problem is, is, is the sin caused by the fact that I do not reflect that image perfectly, that I do not live the way I'm meant to live, that I by nature have no desire to, to place my heart in the, the, the hands of my maker... If my issue is me, what good does it do me to know that there's somebody who, like Jesus, who reflects God perfectly? How does that help me? Me who, uh, you know, I who have this, this ruined image. You know, and we can think that's all well and good for him, but how does it help me? And here's where the Christian doctrine of union with Christ comes to our aid. Because Christ is not only an example of the image to us. By his spirit, he unites me to himself so that just as... He reflects God perfectly. I begin more and more to reflect him. This is the hope that the gospel has. The hope of the gospel is that all the problems that we've seen in this world, which are caused by uh, forgetting about the image of God or, or warring against the image of God, the hope of the gospel is that image of God will be restored in us. Shame on us if we've missed it because the Bible loves to tell us this. So let's look at a few places in closing. First, turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This, this is your trajectory if you're a Christian. This is where you're headed. This is the trajectory for the redeemed. 
And this is a good word for us that we're not being changed into a similar image, but the very same image of Jesus Christ. Everything that will make us satisfied and secure, perfectly reflecting God the way we were made, all that we lost at the fall, we will again recover. To be in Christ is to have his same image and everything that comes with that. That's one place. Then Romans. Look at Romans 8, 29. Tells us uh, something very similar. Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, of course, is a breathtaking passage, but then we narrow in on verse 29 where we're told that the goal of redemption of God's people is that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined to share the image of Christ. We talk about predestination, we're talking about something that happened before time happened. Wrap your minds around that, right? We're talking about God's plan before sin even entered the world. He had determined that you will be conformed to the image of his son. And when sin enters the world, that isn't going to ruin his plan. No, not at all. This is what we were made to be. And why? Why does he do this? I love the language there. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's almost as though God's saying, Jesus doesn't want to be up in heaven by himself. He wants to have a family. He wants to have siblings. He wants to be the first of many brothers. And so God says, you will be conformed to look like him. You will take on the family resemblance. Yes, I know that image is marred in you. I'm going to take care of it so that Jesus isn't up there all by himself. The way our God loves us, it's, it's fascinating. It's breathtaking. One final text, 1 John 3. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Here we're to- told that we're not going to reflect that image perfectly until glorification. It's where we're headed, but we're not there yet. So 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, when he returns, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. When he returns, when we see him, we will be like him. You will become what you behold. And on that day, you will behold the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature. You will behold the one who is the image of the invisible God And you will become like him, perfectly, completely, changed from glory into glory, till at heaven we take our place. That's the time. Now we've taken our place there. Now we perfectly reflect the sun. We will become what we behold. But take heart, friends. Again, here's that hopeful aspect of this solution. Even though we don't perfectly conform to the image yet, We are still children of God now. God is not dangling, you know, kind of like a carrot on a stick. It's not a ploy where he says, someday, someday, maybe, if you keep getting sanctified, you'll be my children. John is so clear. We are God's children now. We are. It's just that we don't see it yet. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. So no, 
Brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are God's child. You are his child right now. And because you're his child now, his promise is that one day soon, you will perfectly reflect the image of his eternal child, his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Observing the image of God in Jesus should fill us with enthusiasm and hope. He is the living representation of what we one day will be. And so what hope the gospel offers us. We're not left in the mess that we made with our sin. We're not left trying to eke out some sort of meaningless existence with our time here on earth. We don't need to be given a plant to water in order to feel important. Nor do we need to bow down to the ideologies of, of wokeness or identity politics or this party or that party that says what makes you valuable is what group you belong to. You don't need that, friends. You do have value. Every single person that I'm looking at has value because you're made in the image of God. And since God made you, I want you to know tonight that in Christ Jesus, he stands ready to remake you if you will simply take him by faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the doctrine of the image of God, which uh, gives us such hope. It gives us... Uh, meaning, and it gives us significance. We thank you that you, you would bestow such an honor upon us to be image bearers, and that even though we ruined that, you restore it in us uh, gradually, yes, slowly, yes, but steadily. And we do believe that we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next until we reach that ultimate glorification. Lord, we Pray that an understanding of the, of the image of God and, and how uh, these truths um, apply to every single individual who has ever lived, every individual we will ever come across, whether we like them or not, it does not matter. Whether they're Christians or not, it does not matter. These are truths for them. Would we be able to share them in a winsome way so that they would come to see Jesus Christ, the one who is the image of the invisible God? We pray it in his name. Amen.